you for today. We thank you for the study of your word. We ask that you be with us, that you give us discernment as always, Lord. We pray for that. Um, because as we get more into the weeds about the arguments and as we look at the different things, this becomes more of an apologetic for what we consider to be the biblical position. So Lord, I ask that you illuminate your word for us through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you help us to focus on you as we're looking at the text, as we understand you are the purpose of prop prophecy as we're looking at this. So Lord, I ask that you help us to do that as we're looking at these opposing arguments and that you help us to be aware that um, we ought not to assume the spiritual maturity of the people that we're arguing against. And Lord, I say that in a genuine way because they may not know something. They may not have had biblical teaching. They may not understand these things at a, at a, at a deep biblical level that would actually enable them and empower them to understand what your word actually says. So Lord, I ask that you give us humility as we're looking into this, that you help us to understand their arguments better than they do to understand where they base them off of. And Lord, I ask that you help us to understand what you have outlined in your word in a clear manner. I pray for this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. We're back into a study of the rapture of the church again, focusing on this subsection, which has a very long subsection at this point. This is our 19th or 20th uh, lesson on eminence in itself. Um, but just as a reminder, which y'all know at this point from the back of your hand, eminence is the eager expectation we have that Jesus could imminently come at any moment for his church. Um, as we spend a lot of time in imminence, you may be hoping that that happens sooner um, because this study might be getting old. I don't know. So in any case, uh, it's a good study to be in because if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, by uh, de facto, you also have to believe in imminence because if he comes before the tribulational period and there are no signs that have to happen before he's able to come, then he has to be able to come imminently. If you believe in anything else, you would not be a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial rapture believer. Now, again, we don't like to just claim that we are pre-trib, pre-mill rapture believers. We're, I mean, it sounds arrogant when there are people that disagree with us, but we're Bible believers. We believe in a literal interpretation of scripture. We believe that means that we need to be consistent about that literal interpretation. We don't change our interpretive means mid-text to fit a viewpoint. We're trying to derive our viewpoint from the text. So we believe eminence is the natural byproduct of that interpretive method. But then comes the arguments. Then comes the opposing viewpoints. So that's what we're looking in right now. So the general arguments, we've been going through quite a few of them. And the one we're at right now is this idea of false equivalency between the church of Israel and Israel. There are a lot of people that believe that the church and Israel are essentially the same entity. The, and they look at that as almost a transitionary period where the Israel was the people of God. Then Israel and the church were the people of God, which is technically not wrong, except they say that to the exclusion of everything that came before when they mentioned the church in that viewpoint. So what they're saying is that because the church and Israel are both the people of God, why would we make the assumption that the church isn't going to go through the tribulational period if we know Israel has to? So that's kind of where their logic goes. Now, 
by way of reminder. This is from a few different Reformed theologians um, of the covenant theology variety. And this is kind of their argument. This is, again, this is going to be a little bit of review, but this is important. This is like the logical building block step by step method of coming to their conclusion. So basically they say that Israel is known in the old Testament as the people of God. The church is the bride of Christ in the new Testament, also known as the people of God. Next is that Israel was promised judgment for her sins in response to her disobedience. This is related to the Mosaic covenant, which we looked at in a little bit of detail a few weeks ago. Um, which is going to put them in the wrath of God in the tribulational period. Next, the church is also promised judgment for her sins in the letters to the seven churches. This is one of the arguments they make. Now they also, they'll mention the passages about the judgment seat of Christ. Um, usually not as a focal point, but they use it as they add it to their repertoire of what they're really trying to convey when they make their arguments. So for instance, they'll, they'll give a verse that they'll quote verbatim and say, this is why the church isn't going to be in or why the church will be there. And then they'll have five other verses underneath that they don't go into detail about. Usually the BMC judgment ones are included amongst those. But in any case, the reason they think the church is going to be promised judgment for her sins is because of what's known as the law of Christ in the new Testament. Now, what's interesting is we make a differentiation between what's known as the law of Christ and what we know as the Mosaic law. Law of Christ is essentially every single commandment or imperative given to the church through the epistolary literature. What's interesting is that it overlaps with the 10 commandments everywhere except for the sabbatical requirement in the Mosaic covenant. So, that being said, it's very similar. Okay. So they make the assumption that they are the same. That's why a lot of covenant theologians come into the idea of, well, there must be a Christian Sabbath. It's on Sunday instead of Saturday because we're the church, not Israel. Um, but we are the Israel of God as they misquote Galatians six sixteen. Um, but that's kind of like where they're coming from with their argument. I'm not trying to berate them. I'm just trying to outline exactly how they come to this conclusion. Next, and this is the second to the last point that they make because the church is sinful, just as the national Israel has been in the past. Why would we make an assumption? Cause they're, they're saying they're acting as if this is ambiguous um, as they're going through this. Why would we assume an exemption from the wrath of God? We don't assume it says that we went into detail about that. Um, why would we assume an exemption from the wrath of God on the basis of passages, which are contested, so if they don't like a passage, they can contest it and suddenly it becomes something they can maneuver to fit a viewpoint. But in any case, that is where they come to and why they think the church has to be in the trib. Now, there, like I said before, there are a lot of ways you could go about answering these objections, but they're not objections. They're making statements of presumed fact and then applying it to the situation as if this is a decided issue. Um, and I'm not bashing reformed uh, Christians. A lot of good things come from reformed theology. Like if you study apologetics, James White is probably one of the best apologists for against the Catholicism. He, he talks about the inerrancy of scripture, the legitimacy of the texts. If you look into the canonicity of scripture, he has a lot of good information about that. But 
What's interesting is that some of the best apologists in the church are also some of the worst theologians. He is stooped in reformed theology to the nth degree. And I've made references to Romans nine because I heard a debate with him about Romans nine. And he started with the presupposition that Romans nine was soteriological, like, which is a fancy way of saying that it was about salvation. So he, in order to come up with their viewpoint, they have to extend Romans eight into Romans nine in the same thought in order to come to the conclusion of election in the way reform theology and Calvinism specifically make it. Anyway, that's a tangent, but again, that that's really where this argument is coming from. And it's actually somewhat prominent. So as we're going through this, this isn't just a random argument. We picked off the internet to debate because we thought it would be the easiest one. I tried picking what I considered to be the hardest arguments that now some of them have been pretty easy, but the hardest arguments that were against the position of eminency. That begs the question, though, why is this against eminency or why is this against eminence? The reason for that is because if the church is going through the chip, then Jesus is not eminently coming. Because if we're promised that we're going to be going through the tribulational period, then uh, I can live however I want to because I know the trip hasn't started. So I guess my time clock doesn't start yet, right? Where we haven't been told that. We've been told to wait for the Lord, not wait for the Antichrist. We know the Antichrist and his covenant with Israel is what starts the tribulational period. So if that's really where we're coming to with our arguments, we have to understand that they're vastly different. Their argument versus ours. So in any case, how do we answer this question? Now we've spent a few weeks on this, um, a couple times. Sorry, the, it went off air for a second. Looks like it's fixed now. Anyway, um, the way we answer that question is we look at who these two entities are, who the Israel is, who the church is, what are their building blocks? How are they made? What's their, what are their promises for the past, present, and future? And then we look to see exactly what are their promises concerning the tribulational period. Now, that's kind of a trick question because we don't have a lot of direct promises for the church concerning the tribulational period. We have a few, but usually they're not promises of inclusion. They're promises of exclusion. So we're going to be getting into that. So last couple of weeks, what we were looking at is this function and operation of the Mosaic Covenant, which is a terrifically large amount of information. However, we looked at what the background of the Mosaic Covenant was, who it was given to, the conditions of that covenant, also the purposes of the Mosaic Covenant, like what they were supposed to do for the nation of Israel, how they were separating, God was separating a nation specifically designed for service to himself. They were to be separated from every other nation. He was developing a separate economy from every other nation. We looked at the purpose of their election because they were the elect nation of God. We looked at what they were supposed to do. They recorded the revelation of the Bible through the prophets, through people like Daniel. They recorded accurate revelation of God. And what's more is they were to propagate a doctrine of the one true God, contrary to every other narrative that they were privy to. And they were ultimately to produce the Messiah. Now, what's interesting is if, if you look at all of this, um, recording the revelation of God was through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the Old Testament. 
um, as far as propagating the doctrine of the one true God, they didn't do very well on that because that was something they had to do. As far as producing the Messiah, they didn't really actively do anything to produce the Messiah. That was what God did through their nation. He just promised through Genesis 3.15, all the way working into all the Messianic promises of the Old Testament, that the Messiah was going to be produced through Israel and that they were going to give birth to him. So again, they didn't really play an active role. They can't claim any glory for that either because that again was God who was working in that nation. What we've been looking at as of last week and the week before are three separate categories as we're looking at this nation, just trying to understand them and their promises. We look at their failure. We've looked at most of their judgment. We're going to be looking at that again on that cheery note I mentioned last week. We're going to be looking at how they're going to lose two thirds of their nation through the tribulational period and the wrath of God. But then we're going to be looking at their restoration, which is the fun part. That's the less sad part as we're looking at these things. Cause it, it's, it's sad. It's, it's really bad that this has to happen, but in order to understand why it has to happen, you have to have all the information that we looked at through their failure of the Mosaic law, through what they did as a nation, what they failed to do, um, the history leading up to the Babylonian captivity, the history just, just out of the ex- exiles from Egypt. I mean, there's a lot of history there. And where they are as a nation right now also factors into that decision. So anyway, let's get started. If you would like to turn your Bibles, we're going to finish our last bullet point in the Israel's judgment section. So turn your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel chapter 22. We read this last time, but we're going to start on it again. So if you go to the book of Ezekiel chapter 22, starting in verse 17. That being said, it says, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because all you have become dross. Therefore, behold, I'm going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in wrath and I will lay you there to melt you and I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted into the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Because again, what were they doing? Or what is God doing here? God is pouring his wrath on them, but he's not purposelessly doing that. He's pouring his wrath on them, as it says in verse 22. And you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. Because again, it's so they'll understand why that's happening. They're understanding their position versus the authority of God in his position. Now, if you could turn to Zechariah chapter 13, that's where we're going to be finishing this point, starting in verse 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off and perish, and the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, these are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Because what is he promising through this? He's promising that two thirds of the nation are going to be cut off, leaving a third. And this third will be the believing remnant of Israel who will ultimately call upon the name of the Lord, who will trust in him. And he will ultimately save them to understand why he's saving them. You'll have to see all the events leading up to that point in revelation chapter 19. So you'll probably have to still go to this church for another two years in order to get to that point in our study. Um, But ultimately that's the hope. And that is, it's really sad when you consider that um, because the, the number of the Jews, it's going to be worse than the Holocaust. If the basic numbers that we have today are similar to what they are when the trip happens. So this isn't, this isn't like a tongue in cheek exercise where we're um, laughing. There's nothing good about this except for the holy purpose that God has through this exercise. Because what he's doing is he's taking a third of a nation who will believe, which again, if, if you're looking at it, what other nation at any point in the history of the world ever has there been that large of a proportion of people who believe in the Lord? I mean, last one I can think of was Israel at a specific time in their history, leaving Exodus. So again, it's really sad, but it's also a joyous occasion because through that third God's going to bring forth the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. So we spent two weeks on that slide. So, so we're going to go to this one. So this is the fun slide. This is um, the one that shows us Israel's restoration. So the first point is that the condition for the king's return for his people was Israel's conversion And they're calling upon his name to save them. We're going to start looking in Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 40, if you could turn there. Um, Because this gets kind of to the heart of the matter of exactly how these things are going to be coming about. Um, Because we look at a lot of this stuff as a condition, like saying, oh, well, this needs to happen before then, as if it's something that we in our human power could make happen. That's what a lot of replacement theology does. They look at the future promises of blessing and they're like, well, we need to, we need to get society turned around. We need to claim it for the Lord or whatever. And they, they mistake the fact that God is the one going to bring these things about. We just notice the chronological timeline and we take the event that precedes the event. And then what they do is they try to apply that as an action that they could perform in order to bring about the blessing that God promised without really understanding the overall uh, chronological plan of God moving into that. So again, just something to kind of keep in mind as we're looking at these, these are chronological conditions, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these could happen at any point in history. God has a specific plan in mind, and he knows exactly when these things are going to happen. So starting in verse 40 of Leviticus chapter 26, it says, if 
again, Mosaic law, if then language, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness, which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, hostility, I also was acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies, or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled, so they then make amends for their iniquity. Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well, and I will remember the land, for the land will be abandoned by them and will make up for its Sabbaths while it is made desolate without them. They meanwhile will be making amends for their iniquity because they rejected my ordinances and their soul abhorred my statues. This is just a basic idea of the if-then language uh, connected to the fulfillment of them getting back to their land. In this instance, it's more reminiscent of what's going to be happening for the Babylonian captivity, but the principles in that law still stand for when they're going to be returning in the kingdom. If you could move to Jeremiah chapter three, that's going to be where we, we pick off the next one. It says, starting in chapter three, starting in verse 11, it says, and the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord, and I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your fathers to the strangers under every green tree. For you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am mastered to you, and I will take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. And it shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of God, or I'm sorry, the throne of the Lord. And all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Because again, these are the things that are going to be happening after this happens. This is talking about the restoration of Israel as a nation. Moving forward, if you could turn to Isaiah, or not Isaiah, Hosea. Chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Um, It says, I will go away and return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and their affliction. They will earnestly seek me because again, what are they going to be doing? They're going to be seeking the Lord. Now it's going to take a terrible chronological list of events that's going to be transpiring during the tribulation in order to get them to that point. But ultimately... That's what it's going to take. We know that's what it's going to take uh, via the scriptures in order to get these people to look upon the Lord that they have afflicted. Next in Zechariah chapter 12, 
uh, starting in verse 10, I think that's just what we're going to be reading. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. It says in verse 11, in that day, there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadrimon on the plain of Megiddo and the land will mourn every family member or every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves and the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. And it goes on because again, this is what the nation is going to be doing. Again, I think it's really telling that this isn't in the book of Acts chapter two. This is in Zechariah 12 and it's talking about how they're going to be looking upon him who they have pierced. Because again, this is the Jewishness of these promises is too significant to overlap and try to assign to the church. Again, as we're looking at these verses, part of the reason that we're going into so much detail, as you can see, there are quite a few of them, which is also why I didn't type them all out in case you were wondering, um, is because it's really emphasizing the Jewishness of these promises. It's not emphasizing the no non-distinction Gentile and Jew alike in the presence of God uh, reality we have in the church because these promises are for a nation that is transgressed against the Lord. We're not even a nation. We're, we are a people from all nations again, moving on. So we're actually going to be going to chapter 23 of the book of Matthew next. So in Matthew 23, starting in verse 37, It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are said to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I know we've read that before. We're going to read it again before we're out of this study, but that's essentially the format for how they're ultimately going to communicate with the Lord in order to be saved at the end of the tribulational period. If you move a little bit farther into the book of Acts, starting in verse three, uh, not verse three, chapter three, starting in verse 19, it says, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Again, that he, God, may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you. Because who are they talking to right now? Is this a big Gentile audience? Is this a mixed audience? What what is he saying? Again, those are self-answering questions. Verse 23, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient time. Again, there are going to be things that are going to be happening that are ultimately going to lead up to that point. And that point of conversion is really what we're interested in while we're looking at these verses, because that conversion is what sets the tidal wave leading into the kingdom, leading into the promises of all of the unconditional covenants, which will ultimately end up with a restored Israel, topographical changes, the king of God's own choosing reigning in Jerusalem physically on a throne 
as we just read, all the nations going to Jerusalem because now it's going to be the focal point of the world because the king is going to be there. But all of those things have to happen through that conversion because that is ultimately one of the main goals of the tribulational period. It's that turning point. There are other goals. It is God's wrath poured out on essentially Satan's world and all of these other things. But the one that we're trying to focus on right now is this restoration that's going to be coming about through it. The next point we're going to be looking at is that Israel would repent about Jesus and she would believe in the king of God's own choosing and be rescued subsequently by her Messiah. So in order to look at that, we're actually going to look in the book of Psalms for probably about 20 minutes. I'm I'm kidding. It's not going to be that long, but there's, there's a lot of information there. So start in Psalms. Uh, starting in Psalm 79, we're going to be reading a few verses there. It says, starting in verse one, O God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the dead bodies of your servants for food to the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your godly ones to the beasts of the earth. They've poured out their blood like water round about in Jerusalem. And there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and derision to those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which you do not know or do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste to his habitation. Do not remember the iniquities of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name and deliver us and forgive us our sins for your namesake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among you, na- among the nations in our sight, vengeance for the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power to preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom to reproach with which they reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever to all generations. We will tell of your praise. Again, the two key verses there um, are actually pretty, pretty significant, but we're not going to be able to go into too much information about that. Verse nine they asked them that the, uh, for the glory of your name again, for his name and deliver us and forgive our, our sins, not anything you did. We're being very humble about this for your namesake, because ultimately the restoration was for him. Again, if you're trying to pray to God, it helps to pray within his will. Um, God makes many promises about protecting the nation for his sake, for the sake of his promise. And so when they're praying, that's what they're praying in the midst of. And so in verse 13, that's why they say, so we, your people and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks with you or to you forever to all generations. We will tell of your praise. Next, we're going to move on to chapter 80 of the book of Psalms. It's going to be really hard to find that with what we just read. Starting in verse one, it says, Oh, give ear. And we're going to be reading 19 verses. 
Shepherd of Israel, who you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your power and come to save us. O God, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and you have made them to drink tears in large measure. You have made us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Oh, God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadows and the cedars of God with its bows. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its hedges? So that all who pass that way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest eats its way and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine. Even the shoot which your right hand has planted and the sun whom you have strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand and upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. And we shall not turn, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. O Lord, God of hosts, restore us. Cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved. Because again, this is not just promising a, again, they're not prom, they're not asking for eternal salvation from the, problem of sin. That's not even in focus with these Psalms. The hope that they're shooting for is that God will physically save them as a nation and restore them to their land for his namesake. And that's what I'm trying to emphasize by showing these Psalms, because as we've noticed, um, these are largely not going to come into full fruition until the kingdom. They're not going to come into full fruition until this third of the nation is refined as they're promised to do, brought through the fire and ultimately restored to the land through God's power for his namesake. That's what we were studying in Matthew 24 when we talked about the gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth. That's when he gathers all. It's not just every Jew in the world isn't going to be confined to one spot. It's a pretty big world. So ultimately, all of them are going to be brought around to the same place to Jerusalem at the start of the kingdom. And these are things that are promised. So if you could turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 53, which should ring a bell. It's a very good chapter. We're going to be looking at that a little bit later when we look at the church, but Isaiah chapter 53. You know, I never had the problem of my, uh, my physical Bible, apps crashing. (laughs) So there's some limitations to that too. So anyway, so chapter 53, starting in verse one, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Um, Oh, we'll keep going. Uh, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of, of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now, what has been argued, I think, successfully by many people is that this chapter of Isaiah is the greatest presentation of the gospel in arguably the entire Bible. If you keep reading, you see what he was doing. You see the concepts of what he did, substitutionary atonement, um, all of these rich theological things you see in these verses with as much clarity and uh, as described here as you would read in the verses in the Gospels where they're actually talking about how these things are happening as the writers of the Gospels are outlaying them. But ultimately, this person that they knew about, that they had all this information about, that if they had Isaiah 53 in the back of their minds during his crucifixion or even during his life, as they were taking this suffering Messiah and crucifying him, if they had any mind to Isaiah chapter 53, they would know exactly what they were doing. Because again, this is verbatim what they were going through. So Ultimately, though they rejected him in the midst of this, that person they rejected is who they're ultimately going to trust in and resultingly be saved from God's wrath, from the wrath of the Antichrist, from the wrath of the dragon, and all of these other things that they face in the tribulational period. Because again, that is their hope. And that's where we're going to end today. We're not going to go into all the other verses. We're pretty much out of time. But just something to kind of keep in mind as we're looking at these things is ultimately that is their future for the people that say the church has replaced Israel. They have to, and these aren't a few promises. These aren't even all the promises that are relating to this subject. This is what I could fit in a slide um, that I felt was appropriate for the amount of time that we were going to be trying to spend on this, because this is a synopsis. This is not an in-depth biblical A to B all inclusive study on Israel's, uh, rejection, her judgment, her restoration. You could go into a lot more detail looking at systematic theology. Um, but ultimately, these are, these are the high points. And this is why we're including it. Because I'm trying to show, in order to try to say that the church replaced Israel, that the church is Israel, and therefore the church has to go through the tribulational period, you have to find a way to marginalize every single verse that we looked at through all of these slides, through all of these, and we're not done yet. So again, if you're, if you're comfortable spiritualizing 
what is going to end up being hundreds and hundreds of very specific verses, half of which came true in the life of Christ in relation to his rejection, knowing fully well that half of the other scripture verses in the same context are talking about their restoration as a nation. If you're comfortable marginalizing those, then that's fine. Again, to your own conscience, every person has to answer to God. But ultimately, we're trying to be as responsible with this text as we can. If I woke up one morning and I read a verse I'd never read that contradicted something I would believe, I would hope to God I would follow that which the Bible teaches, because that's ultimately the goal. Um, They say that... I think it was John Calvin wrote a commentary on every single book with the exception of a couple of the Bible by the time he was 26 years old. Um, Though I disagree with him on some things, John MacArthur makes an excellent statement, which is that nobody should write any book on the Christian life until they have been living the Christian life for 40 years. (laughs) Because again, um, you're going to come up with mistakes. What's more is you shouldn't write any systematic theology until you have exposited the entire Bible. Now, some could argue with that, but again, if you don't understand God's word in totality, why would you try to teach people part of it in minuscule form and try to write books about it that people are going to be basing their life off of? I'd be terrified to do that. Um, And I'm not ever going to do that. So in any case, that's kind of what we're looking at. That's kind of the, the thread that we're moving into um, getting out of Israel's restoration is going to take us probably all of, all of next week. Um, but then what we're going to be doing as soon as we finish that is culminating what I would consider the read that's going to tie this together, which is looking at uh, defining who the church is and defining where she comes from. Now that is going to be fun because that's going to be mostly review because we spent roughly two years in Ephesians and half the verses that give us that information is straight out of the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be getting into that hopefully sometime within the next couple of weeks. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your promises. And we also thank you for the accurate accounting of history that we can read in Isaiah 53, which was written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before you died in a cross as the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Lord, we're grateful for that. We're grateful for what you did for us. And we're also grateful for the example that you created for us. You, you did what we could never do. You uh, were the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that's something that we could never hope to repay. That's, that's something that we could never easily even understand the significance of. So Lord, I thank you for that. I thank you for these promises that you've given to Israel, the promises you've given to the church. We thank you for the promises that we can claim in 1 Thessalonians verses 9 through 10, Revelation 3.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, all of these other verses that promise that we are going to be exempt from the earthly time of Jacob's trouble. Um, but Lord, we also thank you for the opportunities that you've given us in the present to evangelize, to be able to share the gospel, to spread the good news, to be able to reason with people, to show them what your word says, because we understand that our time is short. So Lord, as we're looking at these studies, um, as, as we're trying to understand what your word says, as we're trying to reason 
and understand our viewpoint, which we believe to be biblical at a deeper level. I ask that you help us to refine that viewpoint through the refining power of your word, because that is also ultimately something that your word does for us. And I'm grateful for the work it's done in the past for myself in particular. Now, Lord, I ask that you be with us in our study, going into revelation, our time of worship as we pray as well. And all these things that you would continue to give us the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit. They would help us to understand your word at a deeper level, but not just for knowledge sakes, Lord. I ask that you also empower us for godly living as you promise in Ephesians when you say that we are to be filled with the spirit. I pray for that empowering as we move forward with our day in Jesus name. Amen.